Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is a special episode, number 13. This is, uh, A, it's not unlucky, but B, this was the jersey number that I wore for the last couple years of my career. So a little bit of a special number. And what we're going to talk about tonight is, well, it's going to be a, a little bit of a heavy episode. So number one, we're going to talk about the worst day of my entire career. And I've had elbow surgery twice, and the days that I learned that I needed elbow surgery was not the worst day of my career. Rather, the worst day of my career was uh, performance-related on a new team in a small town in South Dakota. But, I'm sorry, uh, actually in Chicago. But um, we're going to go over that, and we're going to talk about how I journeyed from that horrible experience, that horrible night in Gary, Indiana, um, and ended up making it a positive. And that was through my journey to find meditation and learn a lot of mental training and visualization skills that really end up turning the rest of my career around. So the story starts in South Dakota. When I was with the Lake County Fielders in 2011, they collapsed about halfway through in July due to financial reasons. And so as that ship started to sink, I called some of my friends and I was frantic to find a new place to play because that's a story for another day. But I need to find a new team and I need to hopefully get out of my current contract, which a lot of us were worried that we wouldn't. We were worried that we'd be held hostage on this, as I kind of said, a, a sinking ship of a team. So uh, my friends always came to my rescue and many of my friends were former coaches who I'd played for and, and worked hard for and they're always there to, to vouch for me and I, you know, I, I couldn't have made it as far as I did without them. But I landed a contract with the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks. They were currently pitching with a four-man rotation for the last couple of weeks, and understandably, they were starting to get burned out. So they were looking for a fifth starter. Our team was very successful. We were 20-10 and 10 before, before we folded, and so they were happy to get a piece of you know their, the starting rotation from what was a very successful team. So as we, you know, I, I talked on the phone to, you know, with Fargo, and they said, hey, you know, get in your car. Um, we'll pay for your hotel, we'll pay for your gas, just get on the road and hopefully you can meet the team in Sioux Falls where we're playing, um, tomorrow night. So I was in Chicago and I hit the road and drove all through the night and arrived in Sioux Falls. I think maybe like six or seven hours later and, uh, got ready to play for the, the Fargo Redhawks, uh, against the Sioux Falls pheasants. A year later, they got renamed the Canaries. They kind of had a back and forth between canaries and pheasants. They couldn't figure out what bird they wanted to be. But anyway, up in Sioux Falls, um, I was getting ready to pitch the second game after I'd arrived. Now, throughout my whole career, I was never a sought-after sought player. I was a good player when I was young. I was a good amateur player. And up until, uh, until about high school age, I was a really successful pitcher. I struggled in high school to bounce back from my, my first elbow um, partial tear. But... I was a successful outfielder and a, you know, a, a decent hitter in high school. But to that point in my career, I was never heavily recruited. You know, never, I, I was a walk on to play in college, didn't have a scholarship. I got some scholarship money. My, I guess my third and fourth year, they, they kind of threw me a bone and said, Hey, you've, you've done a lot for us. You've worked hard and you kind of made yourself into a, a scholarship player. Um, so we have a little money freed up and I appreciate that they gave it to me, but you know, I entered college as a walk-on with no scholarship, had to earn my, my roster spot. And so here I was uh, being displaced from the Lake County Fielders, and it was the first time where a team really wanted me. It was, it was like I was being recruited, and um, they were excited to have me. And so what that led to for the first time was expectations. So I'd never had, you know, anyone really put that kind of pressure on me, and it wasn't, it was really a self-imposed pressure, but when you're 
expected to be a certain thing. You know, people, oh, we signed this good pitcher. Um, they expect you to be good. You know, they expect to get what they paid for. And obviously when, you know, first round draft picks get millions of dollars invested in them, a lot of pressure comes with that. And it's hard to handle for, for most of them. Um, some, you know, get over that better than others and perform, but expectations are a thing in, in pro sports and they're a thing in college sports and they're a thing everywhere. Um, just for me, that was the first time I really experienced it. So I felt, all right, I have something to live up to. They're excited to have me and join the rotation and they've heard good things and I need to live up to that. And, and one of the things I've always, it's been a, a tenant in my career is that I don't feel like I join a team. I'm not like a full member until I contribute. And I think many athletes share that, that, uh, that sense of belonging that they need to help the team win before they're really like meshed in with that team. So my first thing that I wanted to do was just do well. I wanted to get the monkey off my back when I arrived in Sioux Falls and I wanted to, uh, to pitch well and prove that I was, I was worth something that this new guy they were getting, you know, was worth something. So I didn't pitch well that first start. I went, I think it was four and two thirds and get four and runs. Um, wasn't a good start. You know, it wasn't the worst start in the world, but it was also a losing effort and not great. So I kind of had to wait and I, you know, was quiet. I'm, I'm naturally an introvert and I, uh, I didn't make many attempts to, to talk to new players. I felt like I should just kind of keep my mouth shut and, you know, keep to myself until I, I did something. Cause you know, who was I, I was just some new guy. And until I helped the team and, and earn my place, you know, I just better off just keep to myself. So we drive back home to Fargo and my next start was at home against uh, the Lincoln Salt Dogs. And we had a nice crowd and here I was and I wanted to prove to the home fans who are really engaged with the Red Hawks. They have a great fan base up there and, and that's partially because I think Fargo's, you know, a little isolated. It's a, it's a town of about 100,000 people up in North Dakota and, uh, you know, they love their they love their local baseball team. So um, I had expectations to live up to up there as well and I did not live up to them. I I think I won another like four-ish innings and another four or five earned runs and another early exit and a loss. So here I was, it was quickly becoming a pattern. And I knew that the manager, a man named Doug, Doug Simonek, was legendary for being cutthroat. Maybe not legendary is the word, but infamous. That he was a no-nonsense guy, really wanted to win, really competitive, and you had to do well for him or you'd be gone. So knowing all this that I'd, you know, now strung together a pattern of bad starts and playing for a very cutthroat manager with a team that expected to win that had good players that was a perennial winner. They're, you know, a championship team, you know, year in, year out pretty much. I, uh, the pressure continued to mount and I started to doubt myself and things weren't going the right way. They're really just starting to snowball a little bit. So my next start was uh, supposed to be made in Gary. And that's uh, in Indiana. It's just across the border. It's it's kind of a Chicago suburb. It's on, in, uh, I guess that'd be southeast of, uh, of Chicago. So Gary has a beautiful ballpark. It's one of the, to this day, still one of the most beautiful ballparks I'd played in. It's kind of set into the ground and kind of tall outfield fences, padded all around, very new. It's very pitcher friendly as well. It's really tough to hit a ball out there, but just a gorgeous park. And uh, I was excited to pitch in it, and I was excited to pitch only about two hours from home. So I was living in normal Illinois at the time. You know, I'd transplanted there after my first season. And so I had, you know, a lot of clients there and friends that I'd made that I said, hey, I'm going to be within two hours of normal. Um, if you want to come watch me pitch, I'm going to pitch on this day. And if you want to come, I'll leave you tickets. So I had a you know handful of takers. And as I get into Gary, we had a, you know, eight-hour bus ride overnight. 
I walk out to the field and I you know, try to find my pitching coach. And I said, Hey, like which catcher do you want me to grab? So I can get my, my bullpen in today since I'm, I guess I was throwing the next day. And he says, well, hold on a minute. Um, you know, just, just hold, hold, hold on. I gotta, I gotta talk to you. So that talk was pretty straightforward and it was, Hey, we're pulling you out of the rotation. Things aren't quite working out. Um, we might put you back in the rotation, but for now we're going to take you out of it. I said, okay. So, I was in the bullpen that night and I was up and up for the, those of you who don't know lingo up means you're available to pitch that night. If you're down you're, you're, you're not available to pitch. So I was up and I had not pitched in the bullpen since I was a freshman in college. Um, this was 2011 and my freshman year in college was 2005, 2004 slash five. So six or seven years had passed, um, since I'd thrown out of the pen. Now, you know, I'm an athlete and I'm a pitcher and I could adapt. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't exactly know what the routine is of a, of a pro reliever, but, um, I guess I'll throw before the game since all those are, all those guys are throwing in pregame and I'll just kind of like tag along and then do my thing. And if I get called, you know, I didn't feel like I get called into the game that first night. And typically what happens when you're new to the pen and this kind of goes for like major league guys, when they call a guy out for the first time, he's making his major league debut, they find a you know, usually a pretty easy situation for them to go into, you know, ease into the new level of pressure. Um, I know my friend uh, Steve who pitched, he made his debut for the New York Yankees, and he just said how, you know, they, they finally, it took a couple of days, but they finally found the right situation. He came in like a, a game where they either, they were either way ahead or way, way behind, and he just said his adrenaline was just, you know, crazy, just through the roof. And so understandably, they want to, you know, kind of ease the pitcher into that next level. So, I figured, you know, if I was going to get in the game, it'd be a blowout or something, and I didn't know. But lo and behold, we had, uh, we'd, we'd been losing, we'd been slumping, and so obviously pressures were even higher because of that. We were also at that point turning in the first losing season Fargo had in maybe a decade, and uh, we had lost maybe like five or six out of seven of our last seven. So it's 3-3. It's like a Friday night. There's like three or 4,000 fans um, in the stadium, and it's a 3-3 game. And we're tied going into the ninth. And I think, oh, well, I wonder who's who they're going to be. The starter's done. First reliever went in. And they say, hey, Blewett, you're going in the game. I say, oh, okay. So I take my jacket off. I start throwing on the mound. Then I go into the game. And in my first uh, relief inning in six years, it was like strikeout, fly out, strikeout. You know, it's like, hey, all right, maybe this isn't so bad. Like, threw well, threw hard, got out of it really clean. Like, good. So I walk into the dugout and our, my pitching coach is, you know, like kind of on the front step and he's like, Hey, you know, you know, like really positive, like, good job, good job. Like, I'm going to try to, we're going to put you back. I'm, I'm going to convince the manager to send you back out. So, you know, after like a minute, he, they deliberate and he says, all right, Hey, we're going to send you back out. Just keep doing what you're doing. I said, okay, I can handle that. You know, I've been throwing, you know, I've been used to six, seven innings. I can certainly handle, handle two. So I go back out there and I'd have to look through the, through the box, the box score in the game, um, game tracker to kind of figure out the exact play by play. But I gave up a, I think I got an out I gave up a hit and the guy got moved to second base. I think they moved him over or something like that. But anyway, it came down to like a runner on second. So the winning runs on second, I think one out and their best hitter, this three hole hitter who had just been released from triple a a couple, couple weeks ago. And he was just, he was just tearing up the league. He's in like three eighty, and, uh, like his last name was Boyer. So pitching coach comes out, we have a strategy meeting. He says, Hey, this guy's hot. He's already hit a couple of doubles tonight. You know, we got to make sure he hits our pitch or we walk him. We got a base open. Don't let him beat us. Right. And that's pretty standard stuff. I actually had that conversation with a, uh, 
one of our young pitchers um, just this past weekend. You know, it's a standard situation. Don't let the guy beat you, especially when uh, you have a base open. So I say, okay, okay. And then he says, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to throw, but, you know, maybe like change up first pitch. You know, he's probably looking for a fastball, just end this game. So, you know, but again, it's on you. You guys pick what you want to throw. He walks off. We decide we're going with a change up. So maybe it was the first pitch. Maybe it was the second pitch. I don't remember. But I was like, all right, good strategy meeting, coach. Here's the worst change up I've ever thrown. Boom, belt high, doubled on the line, game over. Great. So we walk off the field. You know, everyone's shoulders are slumped. It's another loss. We barely won a game in the last week, and we pile through the dugout. And it was a really long, um, like, two-story walk back up through the tunnel up to the really big clubhouse in Gary. Because they had new ballparks. They build them right. You know, they, the, the tunnel connects the, uh, the underground clubhouse, you know, to the, to the dugout. And so we pile up there, and we sit down, and I sit in my locker. My locker is like two or three right inside as soon as you walk in it's like right there by the door and I just sit in my locker and I just slump so now I've been in three games with this team and I've gotten a loss in all three of them and it's just a another crappy night and it's bone quiet in the in this clubhouse just dead quiet everyone's sitting at their locker everyone pretty much slumped over their knees like I am and then finally the pitching coach and the manager they walk through and uh the clubhouse or the clubhouse really expansive there's a big uh you know table for pregame food and all that stuff in the center and there's a big um laundry bin in the center for our uniforms and all that stuff and then in the distance there's the the bathroom half of it where the you know the the, the sinks and the toilets and the locker room the showers are so the coaches walk through and they go right to their coach's office and slam the door and uh this was the next thing i heard you said to send him back out you said he was lights out but he stinks. He effing stinks. Scream, just screamed it. I mean, it, it was as if the walls weren't walls, as if they were just made of paper. Um, and everyone in the room, myself included, knew that the guy, the he, was me. So here I was on a new team, just trying to fit in and do my part, be a good teammate, and help you know a good ball club win. And it was just—it's just hard to describe how that makes you feel. And, you know, what came next was I didn't eat. I just showered, turned in my uniform. Um, you know, I didn't turn in my uniform. I put my uniform in the, the laundry bin, quietly got dressed, and just piled out to the bus and sat in the bus and put my headphones on. But that was, by a wide margin, the uh, the worst night of my career. And so at that point, I just wanted to quit. It was the first time in my career that I ever just, I just wanted to quit because I just didn't want to feel like that again. And pitching bad always makes you feel terrible. It just, it's like your life, you know, your life's work, you're just failing at it. And it's just, it's, it's difficult. And then to hear yourself called out, I don't know if called out's the word, but just in front of everybody, just humiliated. Um, I was a better ball player than that, and I didn't deserve that. But at the same time, no matter what happens in life, you just have to respond. And I could have responded by turning in my jersey, but you know, I, I thought I felt that way on the bus for a couple hours, and then I was like, "No, you're not going to quit. You've come way too far to quit. Like that's definitely not what's happening. But you can't continue to do what you're doing because what you're doing isn't working." And even though you had a good year last year and you had a good first half of the season, I had like a 3.9 ERA in my first season and 
I had a, th- I think like a three eight nine ERA my second or my first half of that that 2011 year. So I was consistently good. You know, I was not a, a star yet, but I was I was good. Um, and there had never been a point in my career to that point where I had really sat out because of performance. I was like the star player when I was a kid, and I was a a, a starter on JV as a freshman uh, in high school, and then I was. I didn't start right away on varsity as a sophomore, but I, I played a lot, and then I was a starter my junior and senior years, and I uh, I only got 22 innings as a freshman in college, but after that, I was a, a starter thereafter, and I was the, the ace of the staff my last two seasons, and, you know, I'd never, I'd never been in, like, the depths of pitching poorly like I was. I just had never been in that situation. I knew that everyone hit that roadblock at some point. Like, I, I wasn't naive to the fact that I was going to hit a level where... I was going to start to fail and I'd have to bounce back from it. Now, independent ball is, is different than affiliated ball and in some ways and not others, but you know, you get more chances perhaps if you're a, a money guy and you know, you're a scholarship player in college, you get more chances to fail because they want to see the payoff of their investment in you. But in independent ball, that's not how it is. They're just trying to put, you know, fans in the stands and make money for the organization and um, win games. And if you can't help them win games, you know, I, as I remarked with Matt Zielinski in one of my other podcasts, like we both seen guys get signed and released in the same day. When they come in, they pitch an inning, they give up two runs after the game, they get called to the coach's office, and they, they're sent home. So I wasn't naive to the idea that, A, I could be released after this game, like I might need to be finding a new place to play, but B, that maybe this was just the level, like I just wasn't ready for it, and this was a, a higher tier league than the frontier league in which I had played the first season, and I was facing new challenges and things I did in the previous year just weren't working this year. And I, I didn't exactly know what it was, but uh, I knew I didn't want to feel that way. And I wanted to pitch well and I wanted to contribute to my team. So after feeling sorry for myself for the rest of that evening, I, I decided the next day that I, I still felt, felt really sorry for myself and that I was just kind of embarrassed. But at the same time, I knew that there were a lot of good guys on that team that they could put their themselves in my shoes. Like they knew what I was going through. Like it wasn't easy to be where I was. And I was appreciative that there were some, some good guys that, you know, came over and talked to me and in BP as we bust over to Wichita after that, that uh, trip in Gary and, you know, just kind of made me feel a little more at home because they, I mean, obviously I I needed a friend Um, and I knew a guy on that team um, unfortunately the late, uh, Jake labor, who was a great pitcher for Fargo and, um, Jake passed away last year and he was a, a great teammate and a great player, but you know, in general, I was just kind of alone at that point And I was mulling over in my head, like what I was going to do because you know, the manager, as far as I knew, hated my guts. As far as I knew, they were probably looking for my replacement already. And I just had to turn it around. So we were in Wichita and it was maybe the hottest place on earth at the time you know it was like late July and they had this turf field and it was I mean like 108 or something off the turf it was like super duper hot and we couldn't even take BP it was so hot and we were in this small clubhouse over the uh over the left field fences where both the clubhouses were this one didn't have a tunnel like the uh the beautiful park in in Gary but uh we had this and then we had this weird clubhouse manager named they called him the Sarge and he was a former military man who ran a, a tight ship, I guess, in his clubhouse. It was very well. I mean, he did a fantastic job. He was just a little quirky. Um, and uh, he really enjoyed his his title as Sarge. You know, he played his he played his part. But 
I just remember sitting there and just trying to gather up the courage to go in the in the office and talk to him. And finally, I did, and you know, I, I sheepishly knocked on the door and poked it open, and um, I said, I "Asked, you know, hey, can I can I talk to you guys?" And I just sat down. And I was like, "Look, I I know I'm pitching terribly, and I also know that I'm better than that." And I just, I just don't know what to do. So I just, I'm here to ask for help. Like, I just, I need help. I don't know what I need to do, but this shouldn't be happening. And I just really like for you guys to, to help me fix it so I can help the team. You know, I just want to help the team win and, and do my part. And I think, well, I know for a fact that was a turning point in that season. And it was, I think, a microcosm of my career and the fact that I was always a coachable player. And that's why one of the things that I, I preach to the kids I work with is just being coachable because when you're coachable and you're receptive to learning and accepting the wisdom that other people have, even, you know, this, this mean old guy, um, he had a lot of wisdom to share, but I think at that moment he viewed me for the first time as a person and maybe not just as, um, you know, means to an end, a means to winning and a means to a championship and a means to a, a contract extension for him. But whatever happened in that meeting, um, something changed. And I ended up pitching with, I think, a 10 ERA for at least 30 innings, which is unheard of. Like, you just don't pitch that bad for that long and stick around anywhere. Um, but, you know, in that meeting, they said, hey, you know, you've got a smart catcher, which was true. This guy, Todd Jennings who uh, was released by the Giants, I think, the previous year. He was like a, he was in big league camp with them. He was a second-round pick out of Long Beach, California, and a funny dude. But um, he was a really smart, really good catcher. And uh, they said, look, just Todd's a good catcher. Just whatever he puts down, don't shake it, just throw it. So just stop thinking, just commit to your pitch, and throw it. That's all we want you to do. Let him take the guesswork out of it. Let him choose the pitches that will get guys out at this level. And let's just simplify it. And they said, you're going to stay in the in the pen for this trip, but we'll probably put you back in the rotation when we get home. I said, okay. And uh, I got ran out there for two innings in relief, like either that night or the next day. And uh, I still did. I get, I think, one or two runs, which when you pitch one or two innings is not good. Obviously, it's a 90 RA for the day. But it was a little better, I think. And uh, I did what they told me. You know, I just... Again, I didn't. I didn't pretend to to know what I was doing. You know, I I pitched a lot of you know, a lot of innings in my life, and I was twenty, twenty four, twenty five years old at this point. And I think a lot of guys at that point would just be like, "No, I like I'll figure this out on my own." But I was like, I'm "Clearly not figuring this out on my own." So screw it. Let's just let's just ask and see what will happen. But the odd thing about that season was that they stuck by me. So as things got worse, things didn't get better fast at all. In fact, they really didn't get that much better throughout throughout the season. But I think because we were we put ourselves out of playoff contention pretty quick. We you know we had like a month to go and we were not going to make the playoffs. So I think maybe they said, look, we're just sticking with the guys we got. Um, maybe they'll clean house next year. But I think at a certain point, I was like, well, I would have been released by now if I was going to get released. So they kept giving me chances, and I kept blowing them. I kept going out there, and I, I remember it kind of culminated maybe a couple of weeks later. I pitched against, I think, Lincoln again at home. I gave up the first 3-0 home run of my career. Uh, I, uh, I threw a fastball 3-0 to this two-sport athlete who used to play at Florida. He used to, I think he was a linebacker and a baseball player at the University of Florida, and he just buggy-whipped this ball over the center field wall. 
And I was like, wait, did people swing on 3-0? And he just absolutely smashed it over the center field wall. And I don't like of all the whiplash jokes that my strength coach would throw at me about after the weekend, he's like, oh, you got some whiplash, didn't you? I'm like, no, but I got like legitimate whiplash watching that 3-0 fastball go out of the park where I just like casually hucked it in there like 88 miles an hour and it went out at about 115. But um, I just got destroyed in that game again, and we end up coming back to win. I think I got eight runs in four innings. I got yanked, and I think we end up coming back to win 10 to eight. And after that game, you know, Doug he pulled me aside and he put his arm around me. He said, "You know what? Like I believe in you. We're gonna we're gonna get through this." And so to see like the turnaround from from uh, you know screaming at the top of his lungs that I stunk um, to that was big. And I think again it was just that meeting in Wichita where something in him switched off and he wanted to help me. And, uh, so my parents came into town to watch me pitch against St. Paul in St. Paul, which if you haven't heard of the St. Paul saints, they're awesome. Uh, they're one of the best organizations in that American association of professional baseball league. And, uh, at this old, at this point they sold their old ballpark, which was like a 6,000 square foot, like really tall bleachers, like municipal stadium, kind of run down and old, but kind of historic as well. Maybe not so historic, but definitely old and run down. But like on Friday nights, I mean, St. Paul's a kooky organization. They do lots of like bring your goat to the ballpark and Bill Murray's a part owner. And uh, you probably saw that Kevin Millar was a, uh, he recently went back. He started his career in independent ball actually. And then had obviously had a fantastic major league career, but Kevin Millar went back there recently and I think he hit a bomb. Um, but anyways, it, they just do a great job promoting their team and people love the St. Paul saints. And so I get to pitch there on like a Friday or Saturday night and my parents were there to watch and I dealt, I threw eight innings. I gave a cheap run in the first inning and I scattered five hits, one walk, seven strikeouts in front of like 7,000, almost 8,000 people. And it was just a awesome, one of the, one of the best memories of my career. And they packed people into that park. I mean, they, they only had like 6,000 seats, but on that night, they took orange, that crappy orange uh, plastic fence, and they fenced off like 40 feet of warning track down each foul pole, and they put chairs out there to fit like another 150 fans in front of each foul pole. So they put people on the actual field, so there was no warning track down the corner. So it was crazy. I'd never seen anything like it, but that ballpark was just bursting at the seams. And uh, maybe it was the fact that my parents were there that they gave me confidence, but after that night in Gary, and I didn't know I had a confidence problem because I really, I don't think I ever did. But after Gary, I did. And my parents came to watch. And I think maybe that was, you know, the the rock that helped me pitch so well that night. Because to this day, I, I've pitched to some insanely low ERA anytime my parents come to watch. But, um, you know, confidence was a big issue. And, and my teammates, as I got farther along, and I started to get to know more of them. They all kind of said the same thing. They'd talk to me in the outfield and they'd be like, blew it, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, dude, your stuff is good. Like you throw hard. You have a dirty curveball. Um, why are you sucking so bad? I'm like, eh, I don't really know. They're like, I know it's like, you don't believe in yourself. You don't trust your stuff. They're like, stop pitching like a pansy and you'll pitch well. And even my pitching coach said the same thing. He's like, dude, you've got stuff as good as guys in big league camp. There's no difference in like, the quality of what you throw, but they believe in themselves like crazy and you don't believe in yourself, yourself at all. And then of course, Todd, my, my catcher, he was just like, blew it. You're a pansy. And not in that word, but, uh, a, you know, a more obscene word, but 
He's like, dude, you're the worst. Like, stop. Just like go out there and say, screw it, man. Like, you just got to go out there. Just not give a, you know, go out there and say, screw it. And I'm like, all right, man. Like, I, I hear you. Like, I get it. Everyone's telling me the same thing, but it's easier said than done. Like, I can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'll just go out there and not care. Oh, I'll just go out there and not worry about anything. Like, if I could do that, I would have already. Um, but I got in the message, which was that, you know, I was struggling because of, A, I didn't know how to pitch to that level at first, but, you know, it was still baseball. And then at a point, I started to get anxious when I was falling in behind counts. I'd I'd be nervous to throw a curveball, you know, on a 1-1 count or a 2-1 count or a 2-0 count, which I had to do to succeed at that level. I couldn't just throw fastballs. But I just became sort of paralyzed by, I don't know where it popped up, but just the fear of failure that I couldn't do anything. And so I was out there hoping that I would just not have another bad outing again, and they become just a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when the season ended, you know, I made it to the end of the season. I think I finished with like a 7.6 ERA or something terrible like that over like 40 or 50 innings. And I realized like, look, look, Dan, let's talk in third person for a moment. Dan, you stink. It's not because you're, you physically stink. Like you're there, like you built yourself up, you throw hard, you have a good curveball that you've always had. Your changeup's getting pretty good, uh, but you stink, and it's clearly mental. So we need to do something. And so I had uh, I'd been reached out to by Alan Jager, who he's the the founder of you know the J Bands, J Jager Bands, and he also is uh, Alan's an awesome guy, and he also uh, is huge into meditation, and he studied philosophy in college like I did, and uh, we so we bond on a lot of different levels. But he read my blog here and there, and. He reached out to me just to kind of say that he liked it and to, you know, fight the good fight. But so I knew that Alan had a book. Uh, it was called Getting Focused, Staying Focused, which I recommend reading, um, which is about the mental game. And it's about meditation and visualization and how they're important and how they can help um, the mentality of, a, of a, a not just a pitcher, but any athlete. So realizing that I needed something to get my confidence back, I I reached out to Alan Towards the end of the season, I was in a hotel and I called him and I said, Hey, can you give me some advice? And he said, Well, read my book first and then we'll talk about it afterwards. And, you know, I I think if you came out to my camp in California, it would be it'd be good for you. You know, we long toss and we do a lot of meditation and we talk about the mental side of the game and um we just have a really good time talking about the mental side of baseball. I said, Okay. And I didn't know that I really thought I would do it, but um, the more I thought about it, I was like, look, you've squatted all the weight you'll ever need to squat. Like, you're big and strong enough. You throw hard enough. If you spend your whole winter just in the weight room, just doing physical stuff, you're not going to change all the confidence issues that you apparently now have, and you're not going to address the anxiety that you feel when you're about to throw a 3-1 curveball. You're not going to address the fear of failure that you've had the fear of going out and getting shelled again and then maybe getting released like you can't play like that and that was sort of what my inner monologue was it was you've got to fix this mentally or else all the physical work you've done is not going to matter so I paid the four or five hundred bucks for Alan's camp and I booked my flight which is another 400 bucks and I booked a couple nights in a hotel which is another 400 bucks and I had maybe like two thousand dollars my name so I was spending 60 percent of my life savings to go out to California and be in Allen's camp and learn how to hopefully save my career. And I think the money part of it was important. And uh, my family, I'm sure my family is invariably listening at some point. 
they ask me for training programs sometimes and some of my friends ask me for training programs because that's what I do for a living. I write strength training programs for people and whenever they want it for free, you know, what I tell them, I tell them, nah, because you won't follow it. If they're not invested, they won't follow it. People have to be invested to get a return on their, on their effort. And uh, sure enough, like Annie, if, Annie, if you're listening, my sister, I gave her a coupon for a wedding gift for um, a free training program that she could not do yet again if she so chose um, because she's like the queen of it right now. She's like four for four of not doing training programs that I've built for her. And of course, I love her to death. So I'm sure I'll keep uh, being a good brother and, you know, wasting my own time. But And then maybe she'll get it one time. Who knows? But Annie, if you're listening, get in gear. But I, I knew that if I didn't invest a lot in this, I wasn't going to get what I wanted out of it. So a lot of that money was going out of my bank account one way or the other. So I could go there and not make good on this or I could go there and see it through. So I went to the camp. I really liked it. I got to spend some, some one-on-one time with Alan and I, I became convinced that this is what I needed and that what I had spent all that money on was indeed what I, what I needed. So I got back and I was armed with the knowledge of how to meditate and what it was going to take and what it could do for me and, and the whole process, which in general was you first have to learn to sit still. That's number one. You have to block off time, hopefully at least 20 minutes, plus give yourself a buffer so you don't have to rush right out the door. Um, and then you just have to just sit still, kind of count your belly breaths. So belly breathing is just going out and in with your belly rather than up and down with your shoulders, which most people do shoulder breathe. And then, you know, the simplest form, you can just start by counting your breath. So every time you breathe, you just count one which is really boring and dumb, but it's something that you do because when you're counting, you're not thinking about getting, giving up a grand slam or, you know, botching the big interview at work or whatever it is, or, you know, screwing up a presentation for, for your class. So when you're counting your breath, you're in the present time. And that's the big thing about meditation. Meditation is about learning to be present. When you're present, you're not worrying about what's already happened. And when you're present, you're not worrying about what might happen. When you're present, you can just commit to your pitch. You can commit to the next play. You can commit to this free throw. You can commit to this kick. You can commit to it and be in the present and not be fettered and not be cluttered by all the other stuff that exists only in the past and only in the future. And so I, I preach this to all the kids that I work with. Like, look, your one job is to throw this one pitch in the spot that you've decided to throw it. And the reasons that you decide to throw it there are already, you've already chosen those. So don't worry about them. So once you've made all those decisions, it all comes down to this pitch goes to that mitt. It doesn't matter. The hitter doesn't exist. Nothing else exists. What might happen doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is the task that I have at hand, which is throw this pitch for that spot to the best of my ability. And if you do it that way, it's just like that old proverb, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And so I always had this sort of fear when I was a kid, not a kid, but I mean, all through my career, it's like, if you're a starter, you're like, man, I got to make it seven good innings with only giving up like two runs, maybe to have a good outing. That just seems like such an arduous, difficult, long task. But if you have to only make one pitch, that's not a big task. I can make one good pitch, right? Everyone can. So I can make one good pitch. And then on the next pitch, I just have to make one good pitch. And then on the next pitch, if I just only have to make one good pitch, Suddenly, 100 pitches later, I've strung together a really good game. So that's what I was building towards. That was what I was hopeful that I could create 
And it all started with me going back home and making time and sitting still. And the first time I do it, I did it. I, I can still remember visit vividly. I was sitting in my weird apartment. I had like this weird day room, I guess. I lived alone and I sat there and I just was anxious. And I'm the least anxious person probably anyone who knows me knows. And I just was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't sit still. I'm just like thinking about a million things because that's what I am. Like I majored in philosophy because I like thinking about stuff. Like I'm just sitting here thinking and I'm like, I got to be doing something. I have all this to do. I have all this business stuff I have to accomplish. I have articles to write. I have, you know, workouts I have to get to. And it was hard. It was really hard for me to sit still. My brain was super cluttered. And when you sit there and think about how cluttered your brain is, you realize how really, truly cluttered your brain is. And so I sat there and I hated it. And I was like, I can't do this. And then the other half of me was like, bro, you just spent more than half of the money that you have in the whole world. You're going to sit here. Like it's only 20 minutes. Sit here. Because if you quit now, that $1,300 is gone and your career might be gone. You know that you need this. Just shut up and just do it. So I did. And a week later, I stopped feeling that way. And I started to feel comfortable. And I started to relax. And then a couple weeks in, I started to relax so deeply that I like didn't really know where my arms and my legs were. Like I was just sitting there and I was so relaxed that I would I thought my fingers were moving when they weren't moving. And sometimes they were moving. It was just a really weird experience. But I just became so deeply relaxed that I just wasn't aware of much at all. And I, I started off just counting my breath, which I get to like four. And then I'd be like having a conversation with some random person in my head. But over time, I got deeper into my counting and I could focus on my breath. And when you're just observing your breath, just kind of like thinking about, you know, my breath going out and going in, it just keeps you here in the present. And it doesn't let you dwell on all the other things that are going on. So I got better at it. And I started to feel comfortable and I actually started to feel very refreshed. And I actually started to fall asleep here and there, which Alan was, he was clear. He's like, look, you will probably fall asleep here and there. And if you do, like, that's fine. Like if you need sleep, let your body sleep. But in general, try to find times when you won't. So like I, I never meditated before like 11 a.m. Because if I was tired, I would fall asleep and I wanted to get something out of it. I didn't want to fall asleep, but sometimes I would. And hey, it was a great little power nap. But I always try to block off somewhere between like 11 a.m. And, and 2 p.m. Because that was kind of like my my time in the middle of the day before I'd start working with the athletes that I trained. So it my goal was ultimately to visualize, to visualize myself succeeding and but to first to do that, the um, example that I was given was that like kind of like a TV. If you took like a you know a white or a silver sharpie and you drew a big X on a television set, if the TV's on and there's a program playing, are you going to be able to like really see that X very well? No. Even if you had like white athletic tape and you taped the big X, the TV's going. There's just a lot of other stuff to distract you. But if you turn the TV off, it becomes black, and the white X is vivid. And you can easily see it. So that was kind of like your brain and all your thoughts are like television shows and they stream in and out and they never really, they never really turn off, but you just learn to not ignore or You just learn to not really pay attention to them. It's kind of like a crying child in a restaurant. If you focus on the crying child in the restaurant, it ruins your dinner. But if you focus on your date or your, you know, your, your coworker or whoever, you, the, the kid goes away, right? It just drowns out. It just depends on what you're what you're uh, focused on. So all these negative thoughts that when you sit down there and you start thinking about your sports career, you realize, man, there's a lot of negative thoughts that flow through my brain. Like you can't do this. This is going to happen. 
you're not good enough to this. This will, you know, never work out for you. Those thoughts, those thoughts never really go away. But when you allow them to just pass through and you don't pay them any mind, just like the crying child, they don't have any effect on you. Right. So it kind of becomes that effect where you're not, you're not trying to stop the thoughts, but you are trying to flood in good ones and you're trying to not pay attention to the bad ones. So if you just clear yourself and I read a lot of great philosophical books in college because I studied philosophy and I had a class on philosophy of sport and we, we talked about the, you know, the far Eastern, the Asian martial arts and all that stuff. And there's a book called the unfettered mind, you know, the, the way of Chuang Tzu, you know, the art of war, um, the Hagakore, all these books, they're all about samurai and they all preach the same thing because samurai were always fighting for their lives. And if they had fear that they were going to be struck down by the sword, it would slow their movements. And then sure enough, another samurai would, would end it for them. So they had to flow and they had to compete with an unfettered mind. And it was just huge. I mean, it was huge for them. That was the only way they could, they could have a longer lifespan. And I'm sure the lifespan of a samurai wasn't all that long in general, but they were huge on, on meditation and visualizing. And, and one of the things they would do is visualize their own death. They would see themselves over and over being hacked to pieces so that when they got into battle, they weren't afraid of it because they lived it already. Like they know they're going to die at some point, probably by the sword. And they've lived through their own death by the sword. So because they've seen it so many times, it's already happened and they can just let go of it rather than living in fear of it. So I did a combination of, of, of all of the above. So about a month in, I could actually put myself on the mound and I could actually see the catcher and actually, I could actually see the hitter and I could never really see faces, but I could, I could paint the picture. And in that picture, I pictured myself doing things that made me uncomfortable. So one of the things that continued to make me anxious and nervous was throwing off-speed stuff, which I had struggled to throw for strikes in uh, fastball, or not fastball, in fastball counts. So when you're when you're three and one, you can't give every hitter a fastball because some are just going to destroy it because it's a fastball count. So to be successful, the higher you play, the higher level you play at, the more you have to throw three-one changeups and three-one sliders and three-one curveballs and and be unpredictable. Um, but all those made me anxious. And it was weird that when I finally got to the point of visualizing, when my, my head became uncluttered enough where I could actually paint a picture, because again, I, I'm a person that has conversations with others in my head constantly, that one of the ways I, I sort of figure out my word, my, my words and, and I, I just have conversations constantly. And it's, it's, I don't know, maybe everyone thinks that way. I have no idea what other, how other people think, but I solve problems in my head by having conversations. So those constantly flow in and out and I could never turn them off. And I had a lot of doubt flowing in, just lots of random things flowing in, but I learned to just let them, to let them go. And then as I started to clear up and I started to become very relaxed, I could, I could paint these pictures. And then from there I put myself in the positions that made me uncomfortable. And so I was constantly throwing three, three, one change-ups with the bases loaded, sitting there meditating in my, my day room. And when I first started doing that, I would feel tension, like flow through my arms. Like I could physically feel the manifestation of my anxiety. And then over time, I would just continue to throw fantastic. I'm, I throw awesome three, one changeups in my own head. Just really great ones. Um, you should see them, but I threw better and better in my own head because it was my own video game. And so when I'm going to throw a three, one change in my head, that thing's going to be dirty. Um, and so I kept doing that. And over time, the more I put myself in that three, one change up position, 
that anxiety that would flow through my arms stopped being there. And then as I fast, fast forwarded to the season and I did this from, you know, January all the way through May when the season started, I had a solid four or five months under my belt. And, uh, I, I use those tactics and there were a lot of other things that I did beyond that. So the first part of it for me was just learning to be comfortable, counting my breaths and the belly breath brings you back to that, that calm, tranquil position. So you're used to being to belly breathing while you're in a meditative state and while you're super relaxed. So when you're out there in a stressful situation, you can take a big belly breath and it sort of just relaxes. It brings you back to that tranquil place. So that and visualizing myself succeeding in situations where I otherwise used to fail was all my off-season work. That's what I was doing, just eliminating that anxiety because I, I threw so many darn bases loaded 3-1 change-ups that winter in my head that when I finally got out to do it in the season, I'd done it a million times. It was like I was practicing baseball without practicing baseball. And I was like, this is this is like this crazy life hack. Like, this is amazing. And it worked. I mean... And then the other thing that I did, the second half was that, of that was I started to talk myself up. So there's things you can put confidence words into your meditation where I would breathe in and I would say confident. And then I would breathe out and I would say dominant. Those are the two words that I gave myself because I wanted to be known as a confident pitcher. And I always was my whole life. I was just embarrassed that I hit this roadblock where I no longer was but I wanted to be confident and I wanted to be a dominant pitcher. I didn't want to be good. I wanted to be great. I wanted to dominate every team and every hitter that I've faced. So when I breathe in and I breathe out confidence and dominance were flowing back into me. And over time you just get, you just, you brainwash yourself where it's like, I'm the baddest guy who's ever taken that mound. And so those words of confidence were important. And then before games, I did a combination of all those. I always found a place to go quietly meditate before I'd pitch and, um, one of the things I would do is I was, even as, as I was walking into the dugout after I finished my pregame bullpen, I would do a couple of different th things. Number one was the, the confidence words that I just talked about. But number two was I would compare myself to a, a major leaguer. So Cole Hamels was my comparison because I had a good curveball and he had a fantastic curveball, obviously still does. And so I, I would talk myself up. I'd say, if Cole Hamels came down and pitched here in Evansville, how would he do? Well, he'd probably throw a no-hitter. And I'm pretty much just as good as Cole Hamels, so I'm probably going to throw a no-hitter today. I said that to myself like every time I pitched. And it could have been whoever. It could have been any pitcher. But that was the guy I felt like had similar stuff to me. Because at the time, after that year with Fargo, I had a great season of, of cleaning up my head. I had a great season prepping. I, I gained a tick or two in velocity. So that spring training, I was sitting 92-94. I had a great curveball. My chain up looked awesome. Like I had a good repertoire and Cole Hamels was like 92 to 96 hammer curveball, really good change up. So I'm like, look, I'm not Cole Hamels, but I'm Cole Hamels. So let's just do this, right? Let's just go dominate everyone just like he would. And then I'll get out of here and ascend the ranks. But that was, so that was one of my tactics. Number two was when hitters talk about who they're facing and when pitchers talk about who they're facing, like they, there's a reputation that precedes them. So as I started to pitch well, and even before I started pitching that season, I, I, uh, I would picture these conversations that the opposing team was going to have about me. So the scouting report that I had, you know, 92 to 94, great curveball, sinking change up. I pictured them talking about me 
and like, oh man, we got to face this guy. Like, dude, he throws gas and, um, dude, his curveball is so sharp, blah, blah, blah. Like I would just have these conversations talking myself up through these other people that I was going to face. And then the last thing I did was I put myself as the fan. So all these fans have the same thing. They, they know who, who's starting and, um, they kind of, especially the diehards, they get a good kind of like scouting report of like who the team has and how good the players are. And I did the same thing. So I pictured myself as a fly sitting on the shoulder of, you know, a diehard fan talking about me. The fans are like, oh, man, this is our best pitcher, and he's out there, and, man, he's got a great fastball, and he's the ace, and he's just, you know, he's just been dominating everybody every every time out. And so I just pictured myself as between this guy and listening to him have a conversation with another old coot about how good I was, you know, and that was part of my pregame routine. And I took the mound in a pretty good place, and it was the the best place I'd ever taken the mound. And that next year was my first all-star year. My first start of the year, I went six shutout innings. I took a no-hitter into the eighth inning, I think, my next start. And I ended up blowing my elbow out after seven starts, but I had, through 42 innings, I had, like, 50 strikeouts and only gave up 20 hits and had a 1.06 ERA when I was all said and done. And I got voted the All-Star Game starting pitcher, but I had to have elbow surgery, so I just sit that one out. But, you know, the turnaround from being 7.67 ERA or whatever it was, to 1.06 at admittedly a lower level. I went back to the Frontier League because I got released by Fargo after the season. But, you know, there were pitchers very much better than I was prior to that who didn't put up a 1 ERA. Like, one a 1 ERA is, is, is very hard to do. So it was just a big turnaround for me. And it was 100% attributable to the off-season meditation and mental training that I did. So... A year and a half later, you know, I, I consistently meditated every day for probably 18, almost two years, 18 months, almost two years. And after that, I got a little busy and I, I stopped making regular time. I still made it semi-regular for about three solid years. And then after that, I feel like I made permanent changes. And um, I still, I mean, to this day, I still feel a little guilty. Like I wish, it's something that I wish I still made time for. I haven't in the last year and a half. I, I haven't when I'm struggling, I'll, I'll find time and I'll sit in my locker and I'll meditate before games, but it's not as regular as it was. It's not an everyday thing. Now I know for a fact I could still take 20 minutes out of every day. Cause I waste tons of time just like everyone else does just, you know, little nickeling and diming of my time here and there. But I, for whatever reasons don't make time for it, but there were a lot of permanent changes that happened. So number one is the confidence that I built never went away has never gone away. I've always, always a confident person, um, until that, that year in Fargo. But after that I regained it and then plenty. So, um, those who know me know, I don't, I don't need any more, any more confidence or arrogance, but I, uh, that hasn't gone away. Um, and in general, I just sort of know who I am. And because I went to that, that, that chasm and I kind of rose back out of it, I, uh, I just knew that I could tackle the challenges that came to me. And I was by no means a perfect pitcher for the next three years after that, after recovering from, from elbow surgery number two. But I, uh, I didn't lack for confidence, and I, I didn't lack for aggressiveness on the mound. And I was known as a, as a pretty mean pitcher when I was out there. Guys didn't like facing me. And, you know, when I, I finally signed with Long Island my final season, a lot of guys kind of remarked to me that they were happy that I was on their side, not the other. So I appreciated that, and I think I, I I built that in that 2011 season and over that off season when I was you know 
taking the time to, to meditate and, and visualize and, and get my mind right. So for me, all this stuff is just, is really, really important. It's extremely undertrained. We tried to do meditation at Warbird Academy a couple of years ago. We tried to take time once in a while to kind of sit, sit around a circle and, and just sit still and, and kids liked it. But at the same time, it's not something that I think you can, can force people to do or, or really make part of like an active gym setting. Like we just, we would need like a, a yoga studio or some other, you know, kind of quiet place where, you know, kids could get their workout, they could go throw, and then they could kind of go into the, the quiet room and, and do their thing. But it's one of those things that people don't realize that they need. And, you know, the, the Eastern philosophy, you know, the martial artists, they knew that they needed, it. you know, Eastern block athletes, they've known about mental training for forever. And that's why they dominated the Olympics for so long. But, you know, in American sports, it's just something that people don't think they need. But you see time and time again, and I saw it a couple of weeks ago where our team was in a base low situation. We had a big lead and we were, we were blowing it. And, uh, I saw both of our pitchers have wide eyes and I saw them pitch out there with a ton of fear and we coughed up, you know, a six run lead in a matter of minutes. So you see, you see it at every level and parents talk to me about it all the time. Like, yeah, you know, he, and, and I remember my college coach and I didn't think it was profound at the time, but he said, you know, if, if you're throwing strikes in the bullpen and you're not throwing strikes in the game, the disconnect is in your head because you can be as robotic as you want. And being a good athlete means you are robotic. Like you learn to just stay in the flow and, and pitch without fear. But I mean, I, I, I remark to kids all the time. And when parents come to me with this, they say, you know, little Johnny can throw strikes in practice, but then he can't throw strikes in the game. And I said, well, it's between his ears because there's no difference in his mechanics when he's with me than when he goes out there. But it changes when there's a hitter in the box and it changes when you're on the field and it changes when there's a you know, an offensive lineman staring you down in the face, like it changes. So to, to prepare ourselves for that, we have to go to, to mental training. And, and I think for most people that means meditation and visualization and, and instilling confidence words and, and all that to, to kind of put yourself in that situation already to separate yourself from the intense fear of failure, the fear of expectations, you know, the, the pressure of expectations that I felt when I was you know, signed with Fargo for the first time, you know, being looked at as a, a guy that they were happy to have that was going to help their team that they expected to do well. So with all those things, mental training is huge, but we still don't allocate any time for it. And maybe it's till we're too late. And, and I'm sure a lot of athletes careers have been cut short because they, they retreated back to the gym or they retreated back to the field to try to solve their problems that were really just between their ears. And it takes some humility and it takes some embarrassment, but I was embarrassed plenty. Like I couldn't go any lower. So it was just like, look, let's find a solution. Let's, let's give it a try and let's see what happens. And for me, it, it's, it extended my career. And I'm, I'm very confident that had I not had that low point in Gary, Indiana, and had that low point with the, the Fargo Redhawks that I wouldn't have gotten, you know, four more seasons of baseball. Like I just would have gotten shelled if I hadn't asked for help. And if I hadn't found a, made a plan for myself, my career would have ended after that season because it just was, I wasn't going to solve it in the gym. I wasn't going to solve it in throwing because as I prepared, I went out there and then my brain is what cluttered my smooth bullpen movement. It, it cluttered my pitching mechanics. It made me hesitate in throwing 
you know, a pitch to the best of my ability. And I had to get back to that state of the only thing that matters, the only thing that you know is that mitt and the pitch that you're about to throw to it. You know, what's going to happen, what's already happened in this game, they don't exist. The only thing that matters is the present, and that's what meditation is about. It's about learning to be present and to ignore the past and to ignore the future. So this is a, a very, very personal episode for me. Um, that's a story that I'm probably going to tell to kids and adults alike for years to come as I, I get out there and start speaking more. Um, I'm not going to shy away from sharing that that dark moment for me when I was sitting in that clubhouse because it was hard, but sports are meant to be hard, and it's all about the way we respond to things. And if we don't take time to nurture you know, our mental side of everything and how we respond to problems and how we respond to, you know, the, the difficulties in sports and the competitiveness and the aggressiveness and the expectations, you know, we can't expect to get very far. So go forth, spend some time, uh, analyze what you're doing and assess how strong you are between your ears. Maybe you're not as strong as you wish you were, but you know, give it a good assessment, go at it with some humility and, and make some changes. There should be something in there for mental training in your regimen. And if you're willing to devote and put your body on the line for hours of strength training and running and conditioning and, and, and throwing and whatever it is in your sport, make sure you allocate a little bit of time, just 20 minutes a night, to impact what's going to keep the ship right all those years. And that's, that's your mind. So this was Dear Baseball Gods. We'll see you next week.